Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhering Apologetics. Super pumped you're joining us today. Today I have Kyle Allender, also known as Christian Idealism. We're going to be talking about the problem of evil and how Christians can defeat it. So yeah, Kyle, thanks for joining <laughs> me. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Glad to be here. Mm-hmm. I think we have a pretty ambitious target here in this video of defeating the problem of evil. Um, so we're just going to dive right into it. So do you have any like general like considerations you want to talk about uh, when we're looking at the problem of evil? Yeah, so I guess the first thing is to sort of tell a short story of how I got here because I... I, just to let you, you know, I, I couldn't have gotten here without, you know, other people's help. So Tim Howard is one partner of mine. We're sort of like philosophical partners and we talk a lot of, on the phone about these issues and me and him sort of worked through it together. Um, and we had to both sort of read a lot of the philosophical literature on this. Um, I think one of the main reasons, you know, we wanted to take a more, you know, we wanted to be honest with the evidence, right? So the problem evil is like the biggest objection to theism. Like if you ask any ordinary atheist or agnostic about, you know, why they don't believe God exists or why they think, you know, that God is not all good or something, it's going to be the problem of evil. Like the problem of evil is like the number one problem for theism, right? It's, it's been around for thousands of years. So, you know, this objection is not necessarily new. What is new, however, is sort of the new formalizations of the argument. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, as I was going through, looking as me and tim were researching this um we had to be honest with the evidence because at first my sort of approach prior to this was um i took the approach of uh clay jones and clay jones's theodicy is i think um pretty good for the most part when it comes to moral evil but it's not very good when it comes to like natural evil or any other like evolutionary evils um so i had to like change my perspective right and so i had to like if i wanted to be honest with the evidence right if i wanted to you know look at the problem of evil in in this sort of in, in the objective way possible i had to like actually go into the literature and look at all the different versions that exist right um early on i started off with uh this now these aren't just problem evil arguments there's also other arguments but mostly problem evil stuff right so most of the arguments in here are going to be um, problem evil arguments and then of course you have jl Mackey, which i read this probably twice now and um you know he presents his logical art you know the logical version the problem evil so i had to you know my my when i when i first started off my sort of view was that um that evil is evidence against god that evil um at least has some weight or at least that you know my, my general sort of view that I took was okay, evil is evidence against theism, right? And that, you know, I just thought that the evidence for theism would sort of outweigh it, right? So I took this sort of outweighing approach where it's like, okay, even if evil is like evidence against theism, it's not strong enough to like outweigh sort of the the probability, right? Mm-hmm. Um that started to change, however, when I started reading, like um there was this one paper by Robert Bass, it's called Inscrutable Evils, and he uses a Bayesian calculation. Now just to be clear, even before this, I, I didn't necessarily agree with the way that he did the probabilities, but basically how he, his argument was that even if you gave theism a 99% probability or prior probability, um, that evil would still outweigh um, theism. So then basically evil, at least inscrutable evils, was sort of like the amount of inscrutable evils would be enough to sort of tip against theism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, again, I don't, even before this, even before I came to the conclusion I do now, I didn't necessarily buy his argument because I didn't, I didn't really agree with the way that he 
did the probabilities, but I could sort of understand, like, okay, you know, an atheist, I could see why, okay, as an atheist, you could sort of conclude, even if you have all this evidence for theism, evil would just sort of outweighs it, right? Um, so I had to, like, I had to, like, be honest, right? I had to, like, look into the data, I had to look into the literature, okay, what are these philosophers saying? What are these atheist philosophers saying? And then also, you know, what are the responses, right, from the theistic side? Right. So me and Tim, we had to like go through a lot of stuff and there's different approaches. Right. So there's there's Clay Jones approach, which is a sort of uh, Augustine theodicy. Then there's also a skeptical theist theodicy or not a theodicy, but skeptical theism is the idea that we can't really know. Right. And so and then there's also other sort of approaches is like the Molinist. I know William Lane Craig has done some work on the problem of evil. So there's a lot of views on this. Right. There's different approaches. So we had to like be careful in how we would approach it, right? And see what is the best approach for a theist to take, right? And we want and we want to make sure, I think most importantly is we want to make sure that, you know, whatever answer we come up with, that um, it would sort of make sure that, you know, if, if we had to present a theodicy, then it had to be good enough so that it would not you know, it would not like decrease the prior probability of the hypothesis. So basically you don't, you don't want to like build stuff in. Right. And mm -hmm. I feel like what Clay Jones's stuff um, did is I think that he has to build in a lot of stuff. So he has to build in a fall. He has to build in, you know, sort of Christian story. I think those are very problematic. Right. And so um, I had to look elsewhere for a sort of answer. Right. And the answer that I came to was, well, I was quite surprised me and, me and Tim were quite surprised when we reached this conclusion, but basically the problem of evil doesn't work at all. So it's not even, it doesn't have any sort of evidential weight at all. Now I know <laughs> that is an extreme position. So I know mm -hmm. that most, most apologists, at least that I've seen, they sort of grant the problem of evil. So they'll say, you know, that it, it can work in some sense, right. But that, you know, the evidence for theism sort of outweighs it. My approach, at least my conclusion on this is that um, the problem of evil doesn't work at all. So it doesn't even have any evidential weight at all. Right. Um, and there's a few I, I give, you know, four main reasons why we'll get into those. But there are reasons why I think that. And, you know, hopefully today I could sort of present those reasons. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess that's the general story. We're basically, we started off with, you know, a, a fall theodicy. Then we worked through the literature. And then finally we came to a point where basically it's not a problem anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And my conclusion now is, of course, that I don't think the problem of evil works at all, like not even in an evidential sense. So the evidential probability is just zero at that point. Um, <laughs> I know that, again, that's an extreme position, but I had to be honest with, with what I was looking at. And so that's what I came to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's super helpful. And I think that when we get through your points, Kyle, um, it does seem kind of like it's a very ambitious claim to say like the problem of evil just like doesn't work. It's a bad argument. Um but to do that, like really, it's important to like get into like your four big reasons that we'll get into them into a minute because I think that's gonna really help um, people listening and seeing this to kind of understand where we're coming from. Because obviously, I know like all my like amazing like atheist agnostic friends that may listen to this will be like, "What the heck are they talking about?" Um, yeah. But you know, we're gonna dive into it. So, anything else you want to say before we dive into these four major problems? Um, I guess there there are two general considerations that I want to point out here, um, and these were. These are sort of what I came to when I was doing my research. So the first, um, I guess, maybe only one general consideration, which is that we have to understand what theism actually is a, as a hypothesis, right? 
So we have to understand that theism, because it's a metaphysical hypothesis, then it should only be concerned with like fundamental facts about the world, right? And so one mm -hmm. of those fundamental facts, at least when it comes to Paul evil, is going to be why does God allow bad states of affairs to occur, right? It's not about okay, well, why does why does God allow you know um, hurricanes? Why does God allow um, pain and pleasure and evolution? Why does God like those are sort of macro level phenomena of the more deeper question in my mind, which is why do bad states of affairs occur, right? Because those are all bad states of affairs, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, um, definitely. And so you know, given the type of given the type of hypothesis that theism is, then the only concern, the only question that a theist needs to answer right with the problem of evil is why does god allow bad states of affairs to occur and why are there like bad properties right so why is why does god allow the badness of properties to take into a hold so i think you know that question sort of covers everything right so it covers you know the biological role of pain and pleasure it covers um you know burning fawn it covers like any sort of evil you can possibly sort of imagine is going to sort of include that general question, right? So I think if theism can answer that question, why does God allow bad states of affairs to occur, then the problem of evil just gets nullified, right? Mm -hmm. It's not it's not yeah. a problem anymore. And it, it doesn't matter like what version of problem of evil do you come up with, right? So that was sort of, you know, it, earlier in my journey before I came to my conclusion, that was I, 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 I that was one of my first sort of principles. It was like, okay, you know, yes, there are different versions of the problem of evil, but fundamentally, they're all sort of linked back to this ultimate question, which is, why does God allow bad states of affairs to occur, right? Because, I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter which version you come up with, right? Even, you know, all the versions that exist today, and, and even any versions that happen, you know, that people, that philosophers write about in the future, is all going to come down to this, you know, fundamental question, right? Yeah. Um. So, me and Tim, you know, we sort of focused mainly on that question, right? So, it didn't really matter if like, you know, there were certain evils, like let's say parasites, or um, there's another example, which is, um, well, there's teleological evils, right? So teleological evils is another example where it's like you have species that sort of their existence is to give pain to other species, right? But even there, even in that circumstance, um, that's that's still going to boil down to that fundamental question, right? So um, that's just the first, that's really the only general consideration I want to you know, people to keep in mind here that um, when it comes to any versions of problem evil, it's going to really come down to that question, right? Mm -hmm. um, so now let's get into um, my four sort of points on mm -hmm. the uh, problem evil. Yeah, so the first, the first one is what I call the problem of shared axiology, right? So what does this mean? Well, I, I went over this in my debate, but I guess just briefly summarizing here. So in order for the problem evil to get off the ground, it has to assume an axiology, right? It's going to have to like assume a more fundamental value theory or what I call value assumptions or a set of value assumptions, right? And I mean, this, and I think this is pretty obvious. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna state, okay, there is this bad state of affairs that God would not allow, well, you're gonna have to assume um, an axiology there. You're gonna have to assume that these actually are bad states of affairs in the first place, mm -hmm. right? And so in order for the problem evil to actually get off the ground, you're going to have to assume a value theory. You're going to have to assume um, that there is this sort of set of values that God is constrained by. And then if God, you know, if God violates those, uh, you know, 
sets, then that would sort of falsify theism, right? Because on theism, God can only do good things, right? That's the whole idea. Mm -hmm. God is all good. He can only do good things. Therefore, you know, given a certain uh, value theory, God can only do what is according to the value theory, right? Yeah. Um, but the problem here is um, that there are a plurality of different value theories, right? There's there's virtue ethics, there's utilitarianism, there's, um, yeah, there, I think, oh yeah, consequentialism, right? Um, there's deontology. Now, this, is, this doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the probably won't work. It just pointed out here that if God is constrained by, let's say, virtue ethics, right, where God is sort of uh, motivated to sort of produce virtues, right? And if virtues mm -hmm. require a certain suffering, then it just logically follows that God's going to have to, according to the value theory, going to have to um, allow for a certain amount of suffering to occur, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think another consideration here, I'll get more into this when I get into uh, the next point, which is the, uh, the defeat condition. But the whole idea is you want to, that sort of lays out the game, right? Because it's like, okay, well, if you're going to come up with an argument from evil, you're going to say, well, God would create a world that is perfect, right? Um, this is the, mm -hmm. you know, imperfection argument. Since we live in an imperfect world, and therefore God would, um, you know, not do that, right? And the issue that I see there is that you're going to have to make a lot of assumptions about what is perfect and what's not perfect, right? And you're also going to have to make a lot of assumptions about what, what type of world are we actually judging here? when it comes to what's perfect, what's not perfect. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and this gets into the problem of what I call um, incrementability. Right. And this basic yeah. idea is that um, there are certain values in our world that you can't really compare to like, I don't know the world, the value of like an angelic world or something. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have this, you're going to have this incrementability going on. So it's not like there's this universal set of like, okay, these are like the best values that could occur in any possible state of affairs and then you have these lower levels like no i think there are sort of like they're incrementable like you can't really measure them so to speak yeah right? and mm -hmm. i think so given that sort of problem then um and this i think this is relevant to the to the uh shared axiology because the axiology is also gonna sort of have this incrementability issue right um and there's a good paper by um i forgot his name i think it's rubio something but he talks about um, how, you know, any world that God creates, there could always be a better world, right? Mm -hmm. And a better world and a better world. And it's like, okay, well, you're going to run into this paradox where God just can't create any world because any world that God creates, God can just create a better one, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So in that case, you know, given this sort of axiology there, then there's uh, there's going to be um, there's going to be a circumstance by which because God cannot create the perfect world because that's just metaphysically impossible then there's going to be sort of um the next then the next best you know state of actions that god can do is going to be an imperfect world right yeah um now we me and tim i know in our last uh, rebuttal to ben watkins we sort of pointed this out and the basic idea here is that there's going to be because of that incrementability problem and given this sort of hierarchy of you know god could just always create the next best world um, then you run into this issue where either God creates no world or God creates an imperfect world. And what I mean by imperfect world is that, um, just to be clear here, that an imperfect world, what I, when I mean that is that it's incommensurable. So 
-hmm. while it is true that God can only create the best world, that best world is going to be incommensurable to some other best world. Yeah. Right? In terms of value, right? Because you can't really measure them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so because of that, that that leads a lot of that that leads a lot of problems because I see what a lot of arguments from evil they sort of do is they sort of assume one set of incremental values, but then they have to ignore this other set of incremental values that God may be, you know, more obligated or more motivated to act by. Right. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So I hope that helps in terms of the axiology. Um, mm -hmm. And then I guess, well, my next point will probably be more relevant to this. But yeah, so I hope that makes sense. Do you have any like questions or concerns? Yeah. So how similar should it be? Obviously, like one very common response to the problem of evil is the idea that like, well, you can't have evil without good, and you can't have good without God. Like, is this is this your any like similarity to that kind of argument, or would it be like a very different kind of like response to the problem of evil? Well, in this sense, it's sort of pointing out that the problem of evil has to assume a sort of incremental value set, right? So what does that mean? Well, it means that in order to say, okay, well, God can only create the best world or perfect world or whatever. Okay, best according to what? <laughs> like, what's mm -hmm. the value set that you're using to judge this, right? Okay. And the problem is, given a certain value set, then there might be a case, and I think this is the case, where you're, you're just not going to have a world that's perfect because there can always just be a best world, you know, a better world, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, relative to that, right? So in that sense, it's incrementable, right? You have this incrementability problem. Right. Yeah. Which is going to really, I think that's going to at least sort of nullify the problem because um, any argument from evil is going to have to sort of have that in the background assumption. But given given this problem of shared axiology, given the incommensibility issues and stuff, then you're automatically that sort of stops the problem of evil from really having any sort of force, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think that's great. So thank you. Maybe then let's dive into number two, which is the idea that like God is a unique moral agent. Yeah. So this one was, um, this objection that I, that me and uh, Tim sort of came up with is a little bit different than the Brian Davies view. So, um, it is similar in many respects, but it's also different. So there's a book by Brian Davies. I think it's called, um, I can't remember the <laughs> God in the problem. Evil. I can't remember the exact title because mm -hmm. I didn't like it too well. Um, it was yeah. it was not like, I, I can agree with some of the motivations behind his arguments, but I was very like, you know, I was like, okay, this is not doing <laughs> too well. But mm, yeah. um, so what Brian Davis is going to say is that, um, that God is not a moral agent at all, right? So God, you know, God is all good, right? But then, you know, God doesn't really have any obligations whatsoever, right? That's mm -hmm. an extreme position, right? And I can sort of understand the classical theist intuition behind that, you know, yeah. but me, what me and Tim have come up with is sort of a middle ground approach where, you know, instead of saying that God is, has no obligations, right? That's one extreme, mm -hmm. the Brian Davies. Um, the other extreme would be that um, that God is a human moral agent, right? That God is sort of constrained yeah. by these ethical um, human moral conditions, right? Okay, yeah, um, I'm trying with you. And so the middle part, you know, a good middle ground between those extremes is, I think, the, the one that me and Tim hold to, which is a sort of that God is a unique moral agent, which means that basically that God has unique moral obligations that only apply to him and nobody else. Now, why is this relevant to the problem of evil? Well, there's a few reasons. So number one is that a lot of arguments from evil sort of assume that God is a unique or that God is a human moral agent, right? 
so like one example is like okay let's say that um you know like someone's getting murdered right it's like oh well you know wouldn't you want to stop that murder right and so because god didn't stop that murder then therefore you know god can't be all good well that argument you know that 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 argument actually assumes that god is a human moral agent right and the problem is is that there's no really good reason for that so that's an undefended assumption that god is a mm -hmm. human moral agent the only yeah. there is one exception though the only time that i've seen it defended the only time that i've seen that assumption defended is that um that well you know if we say that god is not a human moral agent then theism has no explanatory power because we can't explain you know why god does certain actions right um, yeah but i think i think the way at least the, the the approach that me and Tim hold to, which is that God is a unique moral agent, I think that bypasses that problem because we're not saying that God has no obligation. So we're not saying that God has no constraints on him, just that mm -hmm. his constraints are sort of unique to him and that they're not going to be purely, you know, meta-ethical human mm -hmm. constraints, basically. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes so sense. It's almost like the idea, like, like you have the skeptical theistic just to say, like, God's totally unique. Like, we have no way of knowing, like, what he may, like, do or not do. Um, maybe, like, extreme form of skeptical theism. And on the other end, there's people who may say, like, well, we totally know what God would and wouldn't do. And you guys want to kind of, like, find, like, a middle ground? Is that kind of the yeah. path you're trying to go forward with? Yeah, because on my, in fact, on my, on my, on my video on the problem of evil, one of the thing, one of the first things I go over is this, this distinction, you know, th these two extreme camps, right? You have the skeptical theist, which says, mm -hmm. God, we can't know anything about why God allows for evil. But yeah. then you also have this dogmatic, what I call dogmatic theism, which is where we can know everything about why God allows for evil, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. what, what I found is that the best approach, right, is going to be somewhere in the middle, right? It's going to okay. be in between those two extremes. And what is that? Well, it just means that we can have some idea of why God allows for evil, right? We can have some sort of like, you know, um, aesthetic and moral, what I call meta normative constraints that sort of guide god's actions right so we can you know theism in that sense has explanatory power because it because it can sort of explain why we live in this type of world right why god you know allows some certain evils but it's not saying that we can know everything right mm -hmm. so in that in that case then i think that the cool thing about this approach is that it allows theism to be a research project which means we're able to um, learn more about why God allows for evil. So, like, I, I admit that right now, like, I don't know every single reason why God allows for evil, right? That's a research project, right? We we continually learn more about why God, you know, does those certain things. And um, so, yeah, I think what that allows us to do is sort of, it, I think it shows us that um, theism can sort of be its own research project, right? We can mm -hmm. sort of understand, we can grow our knowledge and why God does certain things and it can grow in knowledge and just, you know, it can grow in knowledge and like the explanatory power of theism. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, that's how, that's how I view it. And um, so now, of course, I, I do want to sort of get into a little bit here. What I think, um, what I think God's constraints are. Right. Okay. Yeah. So one of the constraints um, is going to be sort of aesthetic constraints. And one of the core principles behind that is what I called it was what is called the defeat condition. Um, when me and Tim were researching this, we we first came across the defeat condition in um, what's her in Adam's book, Horrendous Evils and the Goodness of God. Um, we also saw well that, and then also Trent Dowdery's work on um, animal suffering. But mm -hmm. the whole principle behind this this uh, let me see if I can find it, but. 
So the whole um, idea behind this principle is that um, God is authorized to allow evil as long as the evil is defeated within the total existence of whatever evil happens to a creature, right? Um, and I think, let me see if I can find it real quick. So this whole, okay, okay, here it is. So Adams and uh, John Snyder define evil as this, or it defeat, uh, defeated evil as this. And evil is defeated when it is integrated as a constructive part of a valuable, possible whole that not only outweighs the evil, but could not be as valuable as it is without that evil, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in that instance, you know, the evil sort of remains in the subject, right? But it is defeated, right? Um, and it becomes a sort of um, a greater possible whole, right? Um, and I think this this condition actually, um, it's sort of, I think what it does is it sort of shows that um, arguments for evil make this fundamental error where they're going to, a lot of them, I don't know... I don't know if necessarily all the arguments for evil do this, but what I've seen is that like the vast majority, even, you know, um, Robert Bass's paper on inscrutable evils, he makes the same assumption as well, where it's like, well, God is constrained by the necessity condition. And on the necessity condition, God can only allow evils that are necessary for greater good. Right. So there has to be this sort mm -hmm. of necessary condition by which, okay, you can only bring about greater goods. If you know, that evil if that greater good would not be possible without the evil, right? Yeah. Um, but the problem here is this this assumes, you know, this is going to assume um, human moral conditions on evil, right? Um, it sort of has to ignore this defeat condition idea, right? And so what I think the defeat condition does is it sort of nullifies the argument, right? So what it does is basically on that sort of view, you know, even, even ex especially when we're talking about like, you know, best kind of worlds and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. What I've seen a lot happen is like the best kind of worlds are going to be worlds where, you know, the good would always sort of outweigh the evil. Right. And that, you know, the best world would be like, where there's just good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but what this defeat condition does is that it, it totally changes the game because it's not about the balancing off. Right. It's not that, mm -hmm. Oh, you'd only have all good and no evil, but rather there's this defeat idea where, um, the balancing off relation is sort of um, nullified when we understand that um, the evil can be sort of part of a larger possible whole of the goodness mm -hmm. of the world. Yeah. Right. Um, and so this sort of changed the game because in that sense, then the best world is not going to be a world where you just have all good and no evil, but rather the best world is going to be a world where you have evil, but that that evil is sort of part of a greater whole. So it's defeated in that sort of sense. Mm -hmm. if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, no, I'm talking um, with you. That's good. And what this does is this sort of nullifies any argument. Well, it nullifies any logical argument from evil, but it also, I think, nullifies any evidential argument from evil because a lot of evidential arguments will sort of ignore this fact and they'll sort of assume the what's called the necessity condition, right? Um, and if if god is not a human moral agent then it's going to just nullify any sort of argument right so to the point mm -hmm. where the the probability like the the evidential force that the probable has with it if he condition is going to be zero right mm -hmm. um now of course there is one exception to this which is um if if an atheist can show that there are evils that are unredeemable or undefeatable then I would say that that is 
evidence against theism, right? That's a I would I would I'll go so far as to say that that is a falsification of theism, right? Um, but the mm -hmm. problem is there's no examples of that at all. Like every every example of evil that we come up with are defeatable in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. They're redeemable in some sense, right? Yeah. Um, and you, you can look you can look at this or any evil, like so, like evolutionary evils, teleological evils, any sort of evils, even like the worst, even like horrendous evils, like every single one of those examples. All you have to ask is, is this evil redeemable? Is this evil defeatable? And if it is, it's not going to have any evidential weight against theism, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, hope yeah, I like this kind of approach of where we're looking at this idea of like, um, well, God is unique. So we can understand like we may not have like all the reasons um, given like evil, like knowing it now, but knowing like the, the nature of God, like all evils can and would be redeemed it's not just like oh he might or he may not um like they will be like even like the most intense like sufferings of like human beings or animals or whatnot like we know like um god is a unique moral agent who can also um is proof of good will redeem these things i think that's super helpful so yeah that's a great point i like that anything else you want to say before we go on to number three um not too much although there is one i think there is one objection that i want to sort of address before we get to the next issue which is well you know God can God can can create a world where, um, you know, every evil is just necessary, right? Like, why why would God, you know, if God has the ability to do, you know, this set of actions, and why wouldn't He do that, right? Mm -hmm. And my response to that is, well, you seem to be assuming that just because God can do it does not mean He's motivated to do it, right? Yeah, right. So, what's important here is that just because God has the ability to do something does not mean that He's not going to have some overriding motivation, right? What matters for theism, what matters for God is not his ability, but rather his motivation to do something, right? So if God has overriding motivations to, you know, allow for defeatable evils, then he will do it, right? If God mm -hmm. has overriding motivations to do that, if he has sort of like these metanormative uh, motivations, these aesthetic motivations to pursue that, then that's all that that's all that really matters, right? Just because God has the ability to do something else does not mean that he's going to, right? What matters mm -hmm. is the the uh, motivations that God has for doing an action, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I just want to, you know, answer that objection, but um, but yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, so then the third thing we're going to look at here is this problem of fine-tuned virtues. So let's dive into that a little bit, Kyle. Yeah, so this one was a little bit tricky um, because I had to reread, well, I reread Trent Dowdery's work on this, I think like three times, at least that chapter. I think it was mm -hmm. uh chapter well, I forgot which chapter exactly it was. Let me let's see here. So chapter doo -doo -doo -doo. Okay, yeah, chapter seven. That's okay, yeah. So chapter seven was um where he sort of presents this argument um from he doesn't necessarily call it fine-tuned virtues, but it's it's sort of a fine-tuned argument, right? Where this whole idea that in order to have certain virtues, you're going to have to have a world where there's this sort of narrow range of good and evil states of affairs, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, you know, the reason for that is because a logically necessary condition for the display of, you know, some of the highest virtues, right? You look at, yeah. you know, certain saints, you look at... Um, you know, just generally speaking, like, you know, in order to have certain virtues, you're going to have to go through certain suffering, right? Um, mm -hmm. You're going to have to go through these um, trials of, in life, right? 
Um, one good example is um, like the defeat of um, a fear, right? In order to have courage, you need to overcome a fear. In order to feel compassion, you have to, you know, um, understand someone's pain. In order to forgive somebody, someone had to do a bad action against you, right? So these sort of things, I mean, there's plenty of examples of virtues, right? But, but my point here is that these virtues cannot exist without without suffering, without evil, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and the whole point of this is that you have to have a sort of limited range of evil, right? Because on naturalism, when you compare with naturalism, um, there is no like constraint. There is no value, sort of. Um, and we'll get more into this in my next in my next uh, objection. But there's no constraint on what naturalism can allow when it comes to evil, right? You, you could have a, you know, a world where everything's going good. You could have a world where everything's going bad, right? Um, there's mm -hmm. no constraint there. The only the only time where naturalism actually has an advantage is going to be when theism doesn't have an advantage. So basically, when theism makes a false prediction, right? And we'll get more into that on the next problem. But this this problem of fine-tuning virtues, I think, what it shows is that. Um, naturalism makes no predictions about the, the fine-tuned range of virtues, right? So I don't even think naturalism predicts that there are going to be virtues at all, right? Um, yeah. And that's a huge problem because in order for there to be virtues, you need to have a fine-tuned range of good and evil suffering. But it, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't seem to me like you could actually, at least on naturalism, you're not going to like expect this sort of thing to occur. Yeah. Right. Okay. That, hope that makes sense. It's super great. I think one of the things, and I think it's going to overlap a little bit with your next theodicy, but it's helpful for me, like thinking about the problem of evil. Um, and one of the ways to really help me is thinking about like, when maybe like theism, like just grant for, for a second that like, well, theism really doesn't have any explanation for like why the state of affairs is this way rather than this way. Well, it seems like naturalism or atheism, we have the same exact problem. Like there's no reason given atheism that we have like this world versus a world of like maybe like five, like hydrogen and nitrogen floating around or maybe like protons and neutrons are sticking together or really any other like state of affairs. Um, so I think it's a super yeah. helpful thing when you're looking at the problem of evil is to really think about like, well, given naturalism, would we expect a world like this? And, you know, it just seems very unlikely as well, even if you were going to say that like theism was in the same boat. So Yeah. Yeah, because one of the things that I've, that i sort of noticed is um like even if it's even if it even if this sort of world is unlikely on theism well how is it more likely on naturalism like exactly, where yeah. where is that going to play into there and i think one of the issues i think a lot of people don't understand is even if even if it's like you know one percent probability that we're going to live in this happy universe on theism as long as that's higher than on naturalism so like let's say if it's 0.5 percent on naturalism versus one percent on theism well theism is going to have like double the advantage yeah. right even when you have like honestly a... probably a lot worse for naturalists like there's a lot more than like 200 different universes that could have existed um so i think yeah. it's gonna be a lot worse for them yeah so you know this this whole idea of fine-tuned virtues um i think i think virtue i think that fine-tuned virtues are sort of um that's actually evidence for theism right so in mm -hmm. order in order to achieve the highest virtues in order to display them and act upon them you're going to have to have this sort of world where there's a certain range of suffering, right? Now, again, it doesn't exactly predict, right? Theism doesn't exactly predict you're going to have this amount of suffering, right? But there is still going to be a range there, right, when it comes to this. And yeah. I think the issue there is on naturalism, you don't you don't expect any of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas on theism, I think you do. I think you do expect um, virtues to play out, right? I think that, so yeah, but I hope that makes sense.
yeah, I think that's great. And I think it's going to kind of get into this fourth and final problem that we're going to talk about today, which is the problem of value mapping and the other. So this is actually, yeah. So this final problem, I think is actually the, probably the most uh, consequential for, um, for the problem evil. I think that not only does this problem sort of nullify, so not only does it, I think, refute the problem totally, but I think it actually reverses it. Right. Um, and yeah. this is, I think it's very simple you know, to point out here, um, there's a, there's a few considerations. Um, so I call this the problem of value mapping and theodicy, right? So for theism, there's a good, good mapping from God's nature to a state of affairs, right? So you have God is all good, right? So then God would sort of actualize or allow for a good state of affairs to occur, right? Um, mm -hmm. And this is interesting because what this concludes is that any good state of affairs would, would be evidence for theism, right? You could sort of expect, yeah. okay, if God is all good and there's a good state of affairs, well, why did the state of affairs occur? Well, because God is all good, right? Um, you can sort yeah. of link that there. You can sort of predict that on the hypothesis, right? Um, but for naturalism, there is no, you don't have that, right? So on naturalism, you don't have a good to good mapping from an indifferent universe, right? Mm -hmm. To a, a state of affairs, right? Or at least a good state of affairs, right? Um, and this, and the reason for this is because there's no value mechanism to sort of, you know, um, tell you, you know, why would you expect this state of affairs versus another state of affairs, right? Yeah. Um, and so this leads to the conclusion, of course, that there is no set of good or bad states of affairs that could be, that could be evidence of naturalism, right? And so mm -hmm. in order for naturalism to actually have the advantage, right? And this is something that Paul Draper sort of does, where basically it has to rely on theism making false predictions. So like, even if naturalism may not exactly predict the data of evil, right? Even if it doesn't exactly predict that there's going to be like this sort of high range of suffering. Um, yeah. The, you know, the argument is that theism predicts the opposite, right? So, so theism would predict, you know, one example is like, okay, well, theism is going to predict a perfect world. Theism is going to predict that there's only good state of affairs. Theism is going to, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I guess, <laughs> I guess you could say like, basically theism predicts a bed of roses, right? Um, yeah. And so the argument is that, well, you know, because theism makes a false prediction, right? Um, then at least on naturalism, you sort of have the advantage, right? Because um, at least there, it's sort of epistemically friendly, to, or at least evil is sort of epistemically friendly to naturalism, right? Or at mm -hmm. least more epistemically friendly. Um, however, this this leads to a, a huge problem, right? So um, the problem is that the moment that theism uses a theodicy to explain, you know, why we have a certain distribution of good and evil naturalism is actually at a disadvantage, right? Because it doesn't have any sort of value mechanism. It doesn't have what, it, what I call value mapping in order to explain any sort of day of evil. Whereas theism, what theism does is it allows for a sort of groundwork for such a mapping to be possible. What does this mean? Well, it means that given a sort of theodicy, right? Theism imposes some limitations on the upper and lower bounds of the distribution of good and evil, right? And mm -hmm. so- what theism does is it actually allows you to at least have some bare minimum um, explanatory account of why there is good and evil in the first place, why there yeah. is the set of good and evil in the first place. But naturalism doesn't do any of that, right? So mm -hmm. naturalism does not does not give you any any idea of why got of why there's evil and suffering in the world, right? Yeah. The only time that that naturalism has the advantage, again, the only time that has the advantage, is if you say, well, theism just predicts, you know. A bed of roses right or something um 
but I, of course, I, as a theist, I would disagree with that given, you know, given the fact that I think that God is a unique moral agent, that God would sort of allow for defeatable evils and stuff like that. Um, and I think that at least the theodicy that I, um, that I've been, well, I'm still working on it, but at least I have most of it out, which is basically what I call the evolving worlds theodicy. I did a video on it a while back. Mm -hmm. Um, and basically the idea is that God sort of is going to create an evolving world. Right. And I don't, I don't know if you want me to get into that or not, if you want to get into my theodicy or not, but, but yeah, I, I do provide a sort of theodicy that sort of accounts, right. For the distribution of good and evil states. Mm -hmm. right yeah maybe see the the odyssey for another day um because we're looking at these four major problems maybe we could even do another conversation because it's a lot of fun um yeah so we talked about these four big things and one thing i just want to like reaffirm for people listening and viewing is like this showing like this big problem of like naturalism and explaining evil like say that like you looked at like a specific evil and you're like well there's like a one in a million chance that like theism could explain this evil well you think about naturalism well naturalism would have to do better than one in a million if I think about the way of like possible worlds, it seems like whew, there's a lot more than a million possible ways these things could have gone given naturalism. If that's right. the case, these are still is the better explanation of this, even if it's like a really poor one in your view. Yeah. Um, it's one of the big problems for naturalism that we've been emphasizing is that what really does naturalism better predict than theism? Cause it's really hard to see. Um, yeah. It's just hard to see. Yeah. Cause I, I think that um, a lot of the times what, uh, when these, when these debates sort of, especially with the Odyssey, right? So um, with the Theodicy, you know, the, the the explanation for why there's evil on naturalism is like, well, the universe is indifferent, right? But then mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, how would, an indif- how would an indifferent universe get you like any sort of states of affairs where there's, you know, good or bad or good or bad states of affairs, right? Or as theism as... as- Kyle, you broke up. Did you? You broke up for a sec. Um, I don't know if it's on my end or your end, but I mean, I can edit it regardless. So maybe you just want to pick up. Um, okay, yeah. Off. So what I meant, what I meant to say is like, okay, one example is like, um, well, one explanation of evil on naturalism is like, well, you know, the universe is indifferent. Okay, that's fine, right? That's an explanation. But the moment that you know, theism sort of imposes the limitations of the evil like so one example is the defeat condition right so if god can allow evils to be defeated right then that's going to automatically provide a better account than naturalism right um Mm -hmm. or god allows evil so that we can grow virtue okay well that's going to also provide a better account than on naturalism right it's not all clear to me why naturalism actually explains evil better than theism at least given a theodicy like that so um, again, I don't want to get too much into the theodicy, but mm-hmm. I just want to point out here that you, you, you do have this problem of value mapping. So you do have this issue of, you know, you get to from, from God to a good state of affairs, but on naturalism, you don't get that right. So there's going to be some tension, um, in the probability space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Kyle. Is there anything else you want to say with regards to like the problem of evil and what we've been laying out here before we wrap up today? Cause yeah, so you know, one of the things I mentioned in the beginning was, um, you know, my conclusion about, um, you know, the problem of evil not being a problem for theism, right? And as a theist, right? So as a theist now, 
you know, I was, I was hesitant to accept that conclusion and I had to be honest and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to like be like, Oh yeah, you're just, you're just being super biased. You know, you're just trying to like support your, your prior position, but I had to change my position, especially in like in relation to like how God actually, you know, does his actions. Right. So I had to like rethink my view of theism a lot and like why God, you know, does certain actions over others. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it took a while for me to sort of get to, you know, grasp that concept, you know, but, um, but yeah, it was a journey. And, you know, even right now, I'm still sort of, even though I'm not really focusing on the problem people too much, I, you know, I still read it sometimes, um, especially like one, one example, just briefly, I was reading, I was rereading uh, Gregory Dawes' book on theism and explanation. And, you know, I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff, but, um, I, I do agree that um, at least if you're going with the whole idea that God is a human world agent, I think you're going to have a lot of problems there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that he goes over is um, that God, he, he, he sort of tries to show that theism. Um, well, I think what he tries to show is that theism has low explanatory power. Right. And I think the way that he yeah. does this is that um, he's going to assume, well, God is going, wants to minimize suffering. Like he just says that outright. Like, I, I can't remember exactly what page he says that on, but he just says that, well, God's just going to memorize suffering, right? So, like, <laughs> from the very beginning, <laughs> like, okay, well, if you're going to say, well, God just must minimize suffering, and if I don't agree with that as a theist, then any sort of argument that you come up with about why theism has low explanatory powers is not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. in my mind, it sort of changes, it changed the way that I saw um, a lot of these atheological arguments, right. And a lot of atheist, um, you know, literature on this, because once you, once you have the uh, defeat condition in your mind, once you have that, and once you have the idea that God is a unique moral agent and all this stuff, um, then it's sort of like, you can sort of filter out a lot of the arguments that you see in the atheist, uh, on the atheist Mm -hmm. side. Right. So when I, whenever I read any argument from evil paper now, I just check, okay, what, what, what axiological assumptions are they using? Right. And most of the time, like it's going to be, you know, the, either the necessity condition or it's going to be another condition, which is the minimized suffering condition, which is what Gregory Dows has done, did. And I'm just like, well, if you're using assumptions that I don't agree with, then you're how, like, why should I take your argument into, into consideration? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's been super helpful, and it's definitely something I need to re-listen to because um, I haven't studied the depth of the problem evil as well as you and Tim have. But you know, I hope yeah. for people listening that it's like kind of helps you like explore and think about these things because really all these arguments are a lot more complex than oftentimes they're made out to be. Yeah, and especially the problem of evil. So yeah, thanks Kyle for helping and clarifying things and shedding light on things. One last thing um, before we close off, there are four books that I would recommend every theist read. So the first one, of course, is going to be. Um, the one by Marilyn McAdams, right? This really helped me a lot in understanding these concepts. Then, of course, Richard Swinburne. I think it is pretty well on natural evil. Um, and then the two biggest ones are going to be John Hick, right? He comes with the Soul Building Theodicy. And then probably the best one, in my opinion, is going to be the one by Trent Dowdery. This is, this is like, <laughs> honestly, I don't know any other better book on the problem people than this one. So um, at least on the theistic side, I would recommend um, that stuff. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, right on, Kyle. Thank you so much for coming on today. Your channel, Christian Idealism, is just added in the description. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I did it a lot. And thank you to everyone who tunes in and listens. Super grateful for you and your support. If you value the show, um, you can become a patron at patreon.com. But that's it. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. And God